Good morning. It is such a joy to be here with all of you this morning. Thank you so much for having me. When I was five years old, I stole my first communion. My church, Richardson Heights Baptist Church, was holding a special service to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the congregation. We were meeting in a high school auditorium in order to create space for all of the extra guests that we assumed would be coming this day. Uh, but the auditorium still ran out of seats, and so my siblings and my cousins and I all were lined up in sort of the aisles next to the main rows. And I was seated in an aisle next to a box of communion to-go cups. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Those little plastic glasses of grape juice that have a, uh, a little seal over the top and then a, a cracker attached at the top? Most people pre-COVID didn't quite know what I was talking about. But in the last few years, they've sort of uh, made their way around. So I was seated next to a box of these communion to-go cups. Um, at my childhood church, children were not allowed to take communion until they could understand what it meant. We were supposed to be able to articulate that this was a reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection. At five years old, I had not yet asked Jesus into my heart. I hadn't been baptized. And so I wasn't supposed to take communion. But something about the box that day just beckoned me. It's like the bread inside was begging me to consume. And so when the lights were low and my parents were paying attention to the preacher on the stage, I snuck my hand inside the box and I stole a portion for myself. I quietly peeled back that plastic at the top and I placed the cracker on my tongue. The salty body stung while it softened inside of my mouth. I was too afraid that someone would hear my chewing, so I just let the body of Christ disintegrate on its own. <laughs> and then I swallowed, and I looked down at that cup, that cup of forgiveness, and I was flooded with shame. I couldn't bear to go on. I was horrified by this hunger that drove me to consume this forbidden food. This temptation that I could not overcome. And so I stuffed the cup of juice into my pocket, and then later on that afternoon, I brought it to my parents in tearful confession. Ever since that day, bread has continued to call out to me. It has continued to shape my entire life. It has shaped my studies, it has shaped my writing, it has shaped my career. I cannot say yet that I really understand what communion means. Sure, it is a remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection, but it is so much more than that, too. And probing that mystery has become my entire life's work. I'm often asked, why bread? Of all of the things that I could spend my life obsessing over, why has bread captured my fascination? Now, I could give you an answer about how incredible it is to mix together a bunch of disparate ingredients and watch them transform into a cohesive whole. I could tell you how humbling it is to learn to communicate with a living dough. I could talk about the ways that baking forces me to slow down my body and to slow down my mind, to meditate on the importance of rest, none of which comes very naturally to me. Or I could talk about the many years that I was told I should not eat bread. 
I could tell you about the dance teachers that all worried about my weight. I could tell you about the doctors that worried about my hormones. I could tell you about the years that my own faith crisis mapped onto the exact same years that I stopped eating bread. And I could tell you about the ways that God healed me week after week after week as I went forward and received communion. But the truth is, I don't know exactly why bread has so gripped me. What I do know is that I am not the only one. It is no surprise to me that at the height of the pandemic, the world collectively turned to baking bread to help face our loss of community and our loss of control. I want to see a quick show of hands. How many of you made at least one loaf of sourdough or banana bread in 2020? Anyone? All right, a good number. Is anyone still baking bread? A few of you, great. I know it's a little bit harder now that you're in college. Yes. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> in some miraculous way, bread connects us to one another. Bread connects us to our bodies. And if we have the eyes to see it, bread, both baking it and also breaking it, connects us to God. For whatever reason, and as I think you will see here this morning, there are many reasons, God chose bread as a tool throughout the story of Scripture to prove God's provision for and God's presence with humanity, as well as a marker of God's promise to restore all things. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He does not say, I am the grilled chicken of life. I am the salad of life, not the pot roast of life. As delicious as all of those things can be, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. With that truth in mind this morning, we're going to look at how bread is at play all throughout the story of Scripture so that we can return once again to the Gospel of John and understand a little bit more fully what Jesus means when he calls himself the bread of life. Bread is incredibly simple. It is made up of just four ingredients, flour, water, salt, and yeast. At the same time, bread is infinitely complex. The type of grain that is used, the microbial strains that are in that yeast, the temperature and the humidity of the kitchen in which the bread is made, all contribute to the nuances of flavor and texture in the final loaf of bread. Humans have been baking bread for thousands of years, and we are still learning new ways to manipulate flavor and texture out of grain. A baker can spend their entire life learning the craft of baking bread and still have more to learn. I hope that maybe in this you can hear a little bit of resonance with our life of faith. Our faith is at once incredibly simple. We believe that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. At the same time, we can spend our entire lives learning more about the character and nature of God, drawing closer to God, and still we will discover more about the beauty of God. I have been specifically studying the ways that bread and Christian tradition and Christian practice are all intertwined for about seven years now, and the complexity of it continues to humble me. I expect that I will be learning more about the intersection of bread and Christianity for the entirety of my life. But in its simplest form, what I have learned over the past several years can be summed up in this. From the death of grain at the harvest, 
to its resuscitation with the introduction of yeast, and finally the dough's death upon entering the oven, where it becomes a bread, it makes a sacrifice that brings sustenance to the entire world, bread contains in every single bite a story of death and resurrection. At the same time, bread serves as a window into a wider conversation about food and about the character of God. In our prayer for daily bread, we are praying not just for bread, but for God's provision of food, of community, and of all of our needs. When we consume the bread that is broken at the communion table, we know God's presence and we know God's promises to us. But those realities extend out to our kitchen tables and our dining rooms as well. Every spring, Christians around the world gather together in their respective churches and receive ashes and hear a reminder of their mortality. From dust we come and to dust we will return. That line is drawn from Genesis 3, verse 19. Here's the full verse. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread until you return to the ground, for from it you were taken, from dust you come, and to dust you will return. Now prior to this point in Genesis, Adam and Eve have been fed by the fruits of all of the trees. Their job was to tend to and enjoy God's creation, and their only restriction was to stay away from the fruit of one tree. Now, we probably all here know how the story goes. The temptation of that tree proved too great, and so they plucked that forbidden fruit and they ate it. Their hunger got them in trouble. And so here we are in Genesis 3.19, learning the repercussions of this fall. One of those repercussions is that the soil will sprout forth thistles and thorns, and the production of food will require an incredible amount of work. Bread, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it does not just grow on a tree. We cannot just pluck bread and eat it. In order to make bread, we have to grow wheat, harvest wheat, thresh that wheat, and then grind it into flour. We have to mix that flour into dough, and then we have to let it ferment and grow. We have to chop wood to maintain a fire and then bake that dough before finally being able to eat it. The production of bread requires an incredible amount of labor and a long series of transformations. But the resulting product is a food with most of the nutrients that humans need to survive. And it is something quite delicious as well. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. I love that the very first mention of bread in the whole story of scripture comes alongside these statements about the curse. This bread is a blessing offered to humanity even in the face of a broken creation. The bread historian, William Rubel, yes, bread historians are real jobs. He draws on this language from Genesis 3 to explain the incredible amount of labor that is required to make bread. He writes that from the dawn of agriculture until recent times, bread has served as a simultaneous blessing and curse on humanity. All over the story of scripture, we see bread function as a sign of God's blessing. We see it function as a sign of God's presence, a sign of God's provision. But in these stories of God's provision, something else really meaningful is taking place as well. God is providing bread to God's people in a manner that relieves them for just a moment from the pain of the curse, from the sweat of the brow by which they will eat their food. 
In the story of manna in the wilderness, God provides bread for the Israelites that does not require an extensive amount of labor. Today, if we get a hankering for a loaf, we can go to the grocery store and we can pick up a loaf of bread. Or if we've got a little bit of patience, we can buy the flour and we can mix up our dough and we can turn our oven to the exact temperature that we need. We can bake the bread and within a handful of hours, we will have something delicious to eat. Some of you will do this with me tonight. But for the Israelites, the provision of manna every morning was a reprieve from a great amount of labor, work that was impossible for them while they were wandering in the desert. They were unable to grow and harvest this wheat. With manna, all the Israelites had to do was go out every single morning and gather. And they had to trust day after day after day that God would continue to provide. They received this bread as a blessing without the toil required in Genesis 3. The feeding of the 5,000 then mirrors this same miraculous provision. Five loaves are multiplied to feed thousands and thousands of people with baskets and baskets of leftovers. Some of us have maybe made bread for about 5,000 people before and know that it is a lot of work with modern technology, with modern mixers and modern ovens and modern rolling racks. It still is incredible, incredibly hard work that is very taxing on the body. And that doesn't even begin to account for all of the work producing the wheat required to make this amount of bread. But for the people who were eating the bread in the feeding of the 5,000, they probably understood just a little bit more than we do how much work was required to make this volume of bread. At the very least, we know that the disciples were aware of just how much work was required to make enough money in order to buy this much bread. In Mark's account of the story, one of the disciples tells Jesus it would take more than half a year's wages to feed enough so that everyone would have a small bite. Like the Israelites in the desert, they were witnesses to God's miraculous provision through a taste of bread that was freed from the curse. On the night before his death, when Jesus offers his own body to his disciples as bread, he takes this story one step further. Jesus does not offer them bread that gives a momentary relief from the curse. It is not just the labor of growing and harvesting grain that Jesus circumvents in his provision. It is death itself. Jesus takes the entire curse of sin and death. He takes the labor of defeating death into his own body. And then he offers that body back to us as bread. Take and eat, he says. Remember my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. The bread that Jesus offers his disciples in the upper room and the bread that we are offered every single time we celebrate communion echoes God's miraculous provision of manna and bread for the 5,000. It serves as a sign of God's presence with us, just like the 12 loaves of showbread that the Israelites placed in the tabernacle. But it is also a promise a promise that God will complete the work begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus. For the past six years, I have spent the season of Lent, the weeks leading up to Easter, guiding a group of people through lessons in sourdough bread baking. Typically, we will mix up a sourdough starter on Ash Wednesday. I really love digging my hands through flour alongside reflections on dust. I love remembering my own mortality, remembering that it is to dust that I will return, then watching this dusty flower come back to life over the next three days. But dust and flower 
are not quite the same. As soon as water touches wheat, a long series of transformations begins. The water activates enzymes inside of the grain and begins to uncoil amino acids that are trapped inside. As these amino acids begin to uncoil, they form bonds with one another, building up a protein network called gluten. You maybe have heard of that before. This gluten is the backbone of every loaf of bread. And once it is formed, it can never be unformed. Once water touches wheat, the flour can never go back to the way that it was before. From dust we come, and to dust we will return. But Jesus, although he was incarnate in a human body like our own, does not return to dust. Instead, like this flower, Jesus offers himself to us as bread. The bread that binds us together as the body of Christ. The bread through which God draws us in and makes us more like him. Now, I have spent about 15 minutes or so telling you just how great bread is and how significant it is to God's work in the world. I even wrote a book that is called By Bread Alone. But if you know your scripture very well, you might notice a small problem. In the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he seems to say the opposite of everything that I have just told you here this morning. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus, uh, the tempter comes to Jesus and he tells him, hey, you should turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's tempting to read this line and to think that Jesus is somehow above any kind of physical need, that he is capable of living off of his deep spiritual connection with God. After all, Jesus managed to make it 40 days in the wilderness without eating anything, and he is still able to say no to bread. It's easy to think, oh, man, I wish Adam and Eve had had that kind of self-control in the garden. Maybe it's tempting to think, I wish I could have that kind of self-control in my own relationship to food. But to think that Jesus is pitting something tangible against something spiritual and saying that the tangible thing, the matter, the bread, somehow matters less is to misunderstand what he's doing here. What he's actually doing, I think, is making a really delightful play on words. In order to understand, we need to turn back to the Gospel of John. The gospel opens with these words, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word who was with God in the beginning. When we skip ahead to John 6, right after recounting the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not because words or thoughts or beliefs are superior, or because bread, actual, physical, literal bread, is less necessary to our daily lives, but because Jesus makes himself known to us in both word and bread. And we cannot understand one without the other. Jesus is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He makes himself known to us also, though, in the bread that we take into our own mouths so that we can know God on our tongues and in our bellies 
when our hunger and our loneliness and our unmet longings are too deep for words. When we cannot feel God or understand God or put language to the questions or the fears that plague us, God still makes himself known to us in the tangible form of bread. God is present with us and filling us, transforming us in the bread that we share at the communion table, but also the daily bread that we bake and break with the communities that care for us and that remind us of God's love. I wish that I could go back and tell young five-year-old me that I should not have been ashamed of my hunger for that little plastic container of bread. I wish I could tell her that hunger would, in fact, shape my entire life. At the time, I likened my hunger to that of Adam and Eve yearning for the forbidden fruit. Throughout my childhood and my teenage years and my college years, I was terrified of my love for food and my desire to enjoy food. But the truth is that hunger was not something I needed to be afraid of. Because it was through that hunger that God draws me in. And it's been through my relationship to bread that God continues to make himself known to me. Now, our relationship to food is pretty complicated, to say the least. To pretend that food is always something good and wonderful, that it is always something that draws us into relationship with God, is to overlook reality as well as the ways that bread is at work all throughout the story of Scripture. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see that God has created humanity with two basic needs. The need to draw nutrition and energy from food, and the need to share our lives with other humans. The only thing that God did not call good in the earliest chapters of Genesis was a human being alone. Our joint needs for food and for community are met at the same time when we gather around the table with others. And so eating and sharing food with others has, from the very beginning of creation, been a way of delighting in the good gifts of God and also living into the fullness of what it means to be human. But in the story of Genesis 3, we see this good gift of God gone awry. We see the, uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, eating this food in a way that uh, fills their own selfish desires rather than being oriented towards drawing them into communion with one another and with God. Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann says that the fruit of that tree was food whose eating was condemned to be communion with itself alone and not with God. It is the image of a world loved for itself, and eating it is the image of life understood as an end in itself. Our food is something that ought to always guide us deeper into relationship with God, and through that it ought to guide us deeper into relationship with community, with God's creation, and with all of God's world. And when we lose sight of this gift of food to guide us deeper into these relationships, that is when this good gift goes awry. And yet it is still through food that God marks God's promise to restore all things. It is through food that God reconciles us to one another, to our own bodies, and to God. Our hunger is not something that we need to be afraid of, but something that can guide us into relationship with God. The God who fills us, the God who transforms us, the God who makes himself known to us in the baking and the breaking of bread. Will you pray with me? 
God, I pray that as we go forward to the tables that we will eat our lunch at, the tables where we will laugh and cry and share time with friends, that we will also see the ways that you are present with us, the ways that you are transforming us through the foods that we eat, as well as the people that we eat it with. I pray that you will orient us towards love for your good gifts, love for the gifts of community, love for the gift of food, love for the gift of your glorious creation, love for the gift of all of your people. Amen.